0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. And there's something in us that believes that by adding more words or capturing a digital still that we might be able to improve upon the moment. We have the same tendency when it comes to matters of faith. How many moments have you attempted to recreate or capture or improve upon in your relationship with God? Is it the attempt to hang on to that post-men's retreat or post-women's conference high? Or is it trying to reignite that season of being on fire for the Lord after a conversion or maybe after planting a new church? Is it trying to relive the glory days of ministry when you were part of a church or a mission trip that was doing great things for the kingdom of God? It's not that any of these things are in and of themselves wrong, but something goes haywire when we try to start making the feelings of excitement or nostalgia or passion the temperature gauge for whether our relationship with God is hot or cold. The Apostle Paul is speaking to an audience who is attempting a similar maneuver. False teachers have risen up in the church and they're beginning to stir up some discontent. They're saying things like, this relationship with Jesus Christ, it's well and good, but there's room for improving upon it. After all, he's getting a little outdated. It's been like 30 years that he was here. Maybe a mystical experience might spice things up. You know, Perhaps an attempt to catch a vision of an angel would liven your spirits. Nothing says spiritual revival like a week-long New Moon Festival or even a 30-day break from food. The church in Colossae is beginning to is being asked to believe that the beauty of the gospel hope in Christ needs a facelift or a Botox treatment. If we're honest, we are equally prone to believe that we can find enhancements to our faith in Christ by looking beyond Christ. We could probably step foot in every single denomination, including our own, and find either explicitly or implicitly a practice or a tradition that claims We've improved upon the faith. Or says, you know what? You've not quite arrived until you've experienced this or that. I had a friend recently describe being in ministry and finding herself struggling with having to play the part of a believer, knowing there was an expectation for who she was supposed to be, and any deviation from that Christian ministry package caused the legitimacy of her faith Christ god to be called into question there's no improving upon what's already perfect and paul after spending several verses that we've studied over the past couple weeks magnifying the complete perfection and first place of jesus now addresses the church with the message look no further you are made perfect in the work of jesus christ rest in him Read with me Colossians 1, starting in verse 21 to verse 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy word, we acknowledge that we are imperfect people. I acknowledge that I am an imperfect and flawed preacher of your word. Would you protect your word this morning from my imperfections? Father, I pray that as we continue to understand perfect peace and understand reconciliation with you, that you would remind us that our hope, that our security, that everything we could possibly need or want is found solely in the person and work Of Jesus Christ. Make that clear this morning. Minister to our hearts and teach us. We anticipate your work by your Spirit this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So these three verses basically put our entire faith lifespan in front of us past, present, and future. Paul wants us to walk away remembering at least three vital truths. In understanding peace and reconciliation with God. First, we were the worst at our Christless best. Second, by Christ's blood, we now stand blameless. And third, in Christ's promised home, we will find our rest. So, the first point we were worst at our Christless best. It's found in verse 21. And a preacher at a church I used to attend would often say about the gospel, for the good news of the gospel to be really good, the bad news must be really bad. Paul begins his passage in verse 21 with the bad news, the awful news about our past, the news that our ears and our minds and our hearts maybe bristle to hear. And it's this, that on our own, apart from Christ, we are enemies Adversaries, estranged from God, separated. Our minds are hostile toward Him. And if there's any question about that, just look at our actions, our evil deeds. They prove that hostility. We are not peaceable people by nature, as much as the world wants to tell us. We can just hold hands and find peace and give peace a chance. Without Christ's interceding, we're tyrants. Demanding our own way and living at war against the God who created us. We are shut out from full access to him. In fact, our attitude, this hostile mind Paul speaks of, wants absolutely nothing to do with God. We are completely out of harmony with God. And one of the things I wanted to do, just real quick because I'm a musician, I wanted to just illustrate in auditory terms, what I'm talking about when I'm saying we're in out of complete harmony with God. Because what you're going to hear is you're going to hear what's called an augmented fourth. And this is a picture, an audible picture of what being out of harmony with God sounds like. That's an augmented fourth. And it should cause you to kind of bristle a little bit like it's not it's not right something's not right it might maybe you'll twitch a little bit something's not right about that something's not right about that so that's an augmented fourth and that gives you again a picture of being out of harmony with God I don't know if you've ever experienced this kind of alienation or estrangement Paul is talking about in verse 21 maybe you were the black sheep of the family who wrote off your parents and said you know what I don't need them And you spent your teenage or your adult years avoiding them and just hearing their voice saying, you know what, if you'd only listen to us, we want what's best for you. It would cause you to just run in the opposite direction. Inside of you was this fire that demanded things to be not their way. It didn't even have to be your way, just not their way. Maybe it's the other way around. And and you're a parent of a child who is avoiding you like the plague. Just step, you're stepping in the room or asking how, how their day was, makes their hair stand on end and cause them to growl back at you. I'm fine. I'm fine. There's a diagnosis in the world of psychology some of you might be familiar with. It's called oppositional defiant disorder or ODD. It's a diagnosis given to children. And I wanted to give you a brief snapshot of some of the, some of the diagnostic criteria and maybe maybe allow this diagnosis of our own hearts in relationship to God when we were apart from Christ. Often loses temper, often argues with adults, often actively defies or refuses to comply with adults' requests or rules, often deliberately annoys people, blames others for his or her mistakes or misbehavior, is often touchy or easily annoyed by others, and is often spiteful or vindictive. One of the things I really appreciate about the world of psychology and diagnosis is that it illustrates for us the reality of what Paul is talking about here in verse 21. All is not right with the world. We are miswired and haywire in how we respond in relationship. Things are not as they should be. And these descriptors of ODD give us another angle of the estranged and hostile nature of our relationship with God. What's even more sobering about all of these criteria is that this is a child And left untreated, children often grow up to be what we would call antisocial personalities who have no regard for the law, for the safety of others, and feel absolutely no remorse or guilt about hurting someone or even killing somebody. Thankfully, most of us, even those of us living apart from Christ, still have our God-given conscience intact, which reminds us when we lie or steal or hurt someone that we are acting in hostility to the God who made us. So why is Paul painting such a bleak picture of our state without Christ? What's the purpose of that? It's as if he's saying to the church and to us, please don't believe for a second that your life apart from Christ could have ever been good. He reminds us and reminds them of who they once were and how in their own power, they were completely unable to restore to themselves a relationship to God. This verse is really difficult for me. I was wrestling with it this week because it's it's countercultural to the notion that there are good guys. I find myself using that expression with my unbelieving friends who are really a joy to be around. I say things like, he's such a good guy. It's easy for me to believe that this person, apart from Christ, is really, he's really not that offensive to God. But what I'm doing here is I'm comparing them with someone maybe with antisocial personality disorder. I'm not comparing them to a holy and just God. Another thing that goes on in my mind is that, well, maybe he's just apathetic or he's just ignorant to the things of God. He's not oppositional. Paul says, no, even apathy or ignorance is an indicator that there is a refusal to take a knee and worship the living God. Romans 3 echoes what Paul is saying here. He says in Romans 3, verse 10, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. If this is truly the case, then we are hopeless. We have no recourse. Paul wants the church and us to face this dilemma when we do, we're left asking the question, who will rescue us from this body of death? Because we cannot ever on our own make peace with God. So, so maybe to some of us, this is, this is nothing new. We know this reality in our head. But our practice, what flows out of us, says something else. We think maybe that we have the power within us to make relationship right with God. I just want you to think for a second of the if-then statements we sometimes make in our heads when it comes to our faith. If I did this, then God would do that. If I served more, then God would see I'm serious about things and bless me. If I repented more earnestly, tears and all, then God would know that I'm truly sorry for what I looked at or what I said. If I prayed three times a day, then God would finally see that I'm serious about my faith and maybe give me that job or that spouse or that retirement that I've been waiting for. Our own efforts can never restore our relationship with God. So I want to offer an alternative to that if-then thinking that we can find ourselves doing. And maybe that alternative thinking might just involve adding the name of Christ to the statement. If Christ, then he... Instead of attempting to be the initiator with God, Christ becomes the initiator for us. If Christ served me by taking a towel to my filthy feet, then he can give me the ability to serve and love my estranged brother. If Christ intercedes for me from the throne of heaven, then he can give me the power to withstand temptation and walk away from the tantalizing lure of sin. If Christ holds all things together by the power of his word, then he is completely capable of taking the broken pieces of my life and making something of it. My estranged relationships, my temper tantrums, my blaming others for everything that's gone wrong, my refusal to listen. If Christ, then he. If Christ, then he. There was a movie which came out in the early 90s, called uh, Defending Your Life. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a box office hit because you'll actually find it on Netflix. Um, and <laughs> Albert Brooks, Albert Brooks plays a man. I don't know if you know Albert Brooks. but He's kind of that quirky, quirky character, kind of neurotic and all that. Albert Brooks, he plays a man who in the first minute or two of the movie is killed in a car accident. And following his death, he's shuttled along with hundreds of others in white terry cloth robes to a place called... Judgment City, and there he's shown clips from his life and asked to prove to the judge how worthwhile or courageous his life was. And it doesn't take him long to realize that his life has little to show for it, and he begins to panic as as he sees the trial going from bad to worse as scenes of his own insecurity and selfishness and fear are broadcasted on a movie screen before a judge. During his time in Judgment City, he falls in love with a character played by Meryl Streep. At one point, he sneaks into the back of her courtroom to witness just one scene from her life. And she's coming out of a burning building, saving her entire family, including the family cat, from their burning house. And he's horrified to know that the judgment he's about to receive is completely fitting in comparison to her life. The movie was a comedy, but it does. It speaks to a sobering reality. Matthew twelve twenty six says, All of us will have to give account for every careless word that comes out of our mouth. Before us will be a holy and just God who cannot, by his perfect nature, allow these offenses to go unpunished. For some of us, the reality of God as judge is just too weighty. It might bring up images of a tyrant father or a cruel dictator. I thought God was good. Why would he demand this kind of justice? Let me ask those of you wrestling maybe with this image a question. If someone broke into your house, stole all of your valuables, abducted your spouse and your children... And was later caught. It would be unthinkable. To not ask that justice be served. Right? What this person has taken away. Needs to somehow be restored back to you. That's not cruel or vindictive. That's completely justified. So if we were to think deeper about the cosmic treason that has occurred when the creatures that God formed by his own hand and he called them his image bearers were to declare war against him by choosing sin and independence over obedience and trust. This can't go without making some kind of restoration, making restitution, making peace between the maker and the ones he made. As the bad news piles on Paul's audience and on us, We are relieved and rejoice to hear the good news in verse 22. By Christ's blood, we now stand blameless. Let's look a little closer at verse 22. Now, the word now, just when we thought there was no hope, he, the maker of all things, became a man. And in his body of flesh, He offers himself as a sacrifice as the restitution that was necessary by his death by his blood paying the penalty and consequence of our rebellion our ODD against God he has reconciled us making harmony where there was discord turning an augmented fourth into a perfect fifth it's just a half step away That's a perfect fifth. But friends, the good news gets gooder, as my three-year-old would say. It gives Jesus enormous pleasure to present us before the holy God, clean. The courtroom images of our rebellion and mistreatment of God are replaced with images of Christ's complete obedience to the Father. He presents us without blemish. The marks of the sins committed by us and against us are put upon the Lamb of God and his perfections are put upon us. We're blameless. There's nothing held against us because restitution has been made upon the cross. He stands before the throne of God as if to say, I present to you, Father, my perfected ones. To the addict whose beating his head against the wall because of another relapse or bender. He says, good news, you're not a slave anymore. To the adulterer playing images of regret over and over in their head, the Son of God says, good news, you're not guilty anymore. To the abused finding safety in seclusion and isolation and keeping themselves from anybody to hurt them, he says, good news, they can't hurt you anymore. To the self-righteous, keeping score of their wins and keeping score of others' losses, the suffering servant says, good news, it's not up to you anymore. And to the insecure shaking in the courtroom, and throne room of God, who knows that every careless word needs to be accounted for, the king of all creation says, good news, this is the safest place you could ever be. So we have the bad news. We are the worst at our Christless best. The good news, by Christ's blood, we now stand blameless. And the best news, in Christ's promised home, we will find our rest. Verse 23. For some of you, you've been waiting patiently to get to this verse because it might raise a question in your mind. When Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, Chad, doesn't that sound conditional? As if this good news that you're talking about could easily shift back into bad news if we're not careful? Could we indeed lose our salvation if we're not careful to continue in the faith? I want to take a minute just to address those concerns because they're they're valid ones. They're important ones. First, In the original language, and I'm not going to be able to go into great detail right now, but I just want to, if you can take my word for it, in the original language, Paul is not expressing doubt as much as he's expressing confidence. So another way to maybe put if indeed you continue in the faith is as indeed you continue in the faith. Continuing in the faith is the proof, is the evidence of our perfect standing before God. That doesn't mean we aren't given this warning and have to pay attention about continuing in the faith. As a parent, I am all too familiar with this reality. My children have confidence when we go to the pool that I, as their father, will not allow them to jump into the deep end of the pool without their floaties. But I still ask them to walk and not run around the diving well. I still remind them how deep that water is and how important it is to keep their floaty on tight. The entire letter to the Colossians is Paul around the pool of false teaching, saying, continue in the faith. Continuance is the test of reality. And a quote I heard that I thought was really helpful. If it is true that the saints will persevere to the end, then it is equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. And he uses language, building language, building metaphors, solid and steadfast, and he tries to establish this idea of foundation as he's talking in verse 23. And I, as I was reading this, I was thinking of the house where we used to live. And it, it was a solid house. We had a, we had a building inspection, said the foundation looks good, it's firm, it's solid. But we had an issue with chipmunks. Before I was a homeowner, chipmunks had that cuteness to of <laughs> those precious, precious little creatures. And after having a home, I can say they have become my arch nemesis. And the reason being is that they have the potential in their tiny little burrows and shifty little underground operations to completely destroy the foundation of a house. Bliss would laugh at me because I was like Bill Murray from Caddyshack, just going after the gopher, like in every maneuver, because I I had to think of anything to try to persuade them off of our property. And I remember at one point attempting, (laughs) attempting to drown them out from under our garage foundation, by inserting a garden hose into their little front door. And I, le- I turned on the water and left it running for about an hour. And we had to leave for something that afternoon. And I turned off the water feeling victorious. Gone. No more chipmunks. They're done. And it was in arriving home later that night that I discovered their counter maneuver. They had chewed a hole in the hose so the water wouldn't make its way into their, into their home. They ruined my garden hose. Those chipmunks. I know it sounds ridiculous, but Paul is urging us to remain active to protect our foundation from those subtle influences that can come in and wreak havoc on our lives. That foundation that we're talking about here is our faith in Christ, that he has been victorious over every battle which wars against us, and in him alone we can find refuge and protection. The Colossian church was wanting to, in a sense, add an addition to their house of foundation. Add on to the already firm and solid hope of the gospel. Some questions we might need to ask ourselves are, okay, what additions am I attempting to put on this foundation of faith? Is it an increase in my status as a believer, as a Christian, or how long I've been a Christian? Is it, is it having more knowledge? Is it gaining more knowledge? Is it, is it maybe adding the addition of being, you know, maybe more comfortable in my faith? Um, and I think a second question to ask from this passage is, what are the chipmunks that are attempting to gnaw at my faith foundation? What subtle underground operations are they running behind the scenes or under the radar? Because you need to know them. You need to know them. And you need to ask Christ, take them on. Take them on, Lord. And Paul urges us to find contentment and security on this foundation of Christ himself. And we have a structure that can withstand anything, any chipmunk even death. I want to close with this. There's some debate in this passage about whether Christ is presenting us holy and blameless, if that's an allusion back to the sacrificial system found in the book of Leviticus, or if Paul is mainly speaking of like a courtroom proceeding or has a judicial sort of system in mind. And I would argue that potentially they're the same thing. Because when someone would come to the temple to bring their sacrifice, the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled, was not only a place of worship, but it also housed the mercy seat of God, which is a place one of my professors in seminary called the footstool of the throne room of God. So he is, the judge is sitting there in that throne room. And back in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, the blood, the sacrifices, the cleansing, the altar, they served as a shadow of of things that were going to be fulfilled in Jesus. So the process of atoning for sins, or what we're talking about here, making peace with God, involved someone coming to the temple with an unblemished male animal. But before the animal was killed and the blood was poured out onto the altar, the person had to place his hand on the head of the animal as if to say, my sin on him. He is dying on my behalf in order that restitution be made for my sin. Friends, there are some of us here maybe who believe there is no animal large enough to contain the mess my sin has brought on myself and brought on those around me. The burden is too great for anyone to bear. But I'm here to encourage you. There is a man who was pure, who was without blemish or guilt, who is asking you to lean your whole self upon him. He welcomes you. He invites you. Now to lean hard, to even fall all your weight upon him as the only one who is able to make peace between you and a perfect God. In leaning all of your weight upon his perfection, you will find every guilty muscle and fiber and tendon of your body start to rest. There is nothing, friends, you can add to this perfection And in leaning yourself onto this lasting foundation of Jesus Christ, you will find perfect and permanent and forever peace. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for a place that we can go. A place that we can find rest for our guilty, aching souls. Father, would you help us this day and this week and this year to lean all of our weight upon Christ. To remember that we bring nothing to the table and he brings nothing everything to the altar. Father, help us to remember that there is no sin greater than your grace and help us to lean heavily upon that grace that we find in the person and work and the blood and the death of Jesus Christ. And it's in his perfect and holy and blameless name that we pray. Amen.